This is a series which we hope to expand uh, with a number of people and I thought of this interviews uh, to really get the story uh, with the new technology on various monks and lay people's practice, uh, primarily uh, from the West. And so the series is basically my life and my practice and they go together well and are weaving together so uh, woven together so we will be talking to Ajahn Pavaro today uh, who has a lot of history with me and I'll be asking him about his life and practice uh, he is visiting at the moment from his uh, base in Thailand and first of all let's talk a little bit about that so what monastery are you at in thailand these days well i'm about to enter the six punts actually in uh, anandagiri it's um i call it sort of north central thailand it's in pechibun province um, in an area called called Khao Khao. i start getting tongue twisted as soon as i and um ajan achalo is the abbot he's australian and typically there are just, you know, four, five, six monks there, um, both Thai and, uh, and foreigner. So, yeah, I've been there now uh, five full years, uh, a little over, and uh, that's, that's where I'm based. And, I've, of course, we, we, we travel back and forth to the Wat Pananachat community, and we see other uh, uh, monasteries in, in the country, but that's, that's my home, you might say. So this is part of the Ajahn Chah tradition. And this is a branch monastery? It's, uh, I guess, an affiliated monastery at the moment. As, as you know, there are some kind of formal uh, requirements to be a, an actual branch. But yes, it's very much affiliated. We, um, uh, uh, we, we go each year to the, to the memorial uh, gathering at Wat Papong. Uh, we stay at Wat Pananachat. And we're, we, we have very close connections, uh, cordial um, fraternal connections with the Wat Pananachat community, with Ajahn Kevali, Ajahn Siripanyo, and so forth. So, uh, and that, being plugged in like that in Thailand is just wonderful because uh, you immediately have um, uh, a fraternity uh, of, of um, monastics that you can um, be with, speak with, learn from, uh, and so it's an invaluable uh, experience, actually. So you have your the horizontal level, the peers, so that are approximately within your reins are slightly um, more experienced or uh, uh, senior to you. And then the vertical integration in, in that large Sangha. And it's, it's very large. There's something like 330 branch monasteries now in Thailand <laughs> and uh, 33 in the West mm -hmm. around the world. A nice symmetry there. Ten times in Thailand what is around the world. But it's, it's probably the largest uh, of the Theravada sort of communities that is uh, has arrived in the West. I don't think there's anything mm -hmm. like it. There might even not be any equivalent in, in the Mahayana tradition either. But when you first arrived in Thailand, five five years ago, was it? Five, six uh, years ago? Six and a half years now. So uh, you didn't stay at Anandagiri, you stayed where? Well, I arrived as as we would typically do. I arrived at Wapananachat, got my feet on the ground there a bit, and um, it was actually the year in which uh, Lumpta Mahabua passed on. So I went to a, a, the funeral of, of uh, that great monk uh, in his uh, home monastery uh, with the Wapananachat community, and uh, but I was already slated to to accompany uh, Ajahn Siripanyo and a group. <clears throat> to Daodam Monastery, which, or I guess is a hermitage really, uh, in the mountains um, to the west of Thailand, overlooking the border with Myanmar, uh, high in the, the jungle, the forest there. Uh, it's a, even for Thais, I understand, it's, a, it's, it's almost a miraculous place. I, I remember being there when Thais would come and they, they just couldn't believe that this still existed. So I spent overall uh, about six months of my first year in Thailand there. So uh, just, in, in fact, most of that time was just with Ajahn Siripanyo. So um, my early exposure to, to Thai culture was basically um, sitting in, in, a, in a very dense forest. Uh, and that forest is really pristine uh, and 
lots of old growth and full of uh, wild animals. Yes. So how was that for Canadian monk to go into the depths of the Thai jungle, what remains of the Thai jungle? Because uh, Thailand has deforested a significant amount of their uh, uh, forest, uh, maybe 90% of it. And so this that area is still uh, remaining pristine uh, and full of the uh, classical wildlife of Thailand. So did you have any encounters? Uh, as I said to you yesterday when, when we were walking, uh, you quickly transform from somebody who's looking at blackened stumps, you know, seeing bears and everything in, in Canadian forests, uh, to looking for and at roots and, and uh, branches and things on the ground and, and thinking that they're a snake. So that was a, that was a big transition. Yeah, I had saw my first cobra there. I was um, I was just walking down a path, sweeping it, and when I looked behind me at one point, I saw this must have been seven, seven and a half foot cobra, just just very very calmly, just crossing the path. It in my mind at least, it had likely heard me sweeping, felt my presence, and then just waited. Um, and I was of course moving at a very st- steady rate away from it, and then it just slid across, very completely flat, not 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 in any kind of hurry. Um, my senses of cobras that they are in, they have no need usually to be in much of a hurry. So that was that was quite an eye opener. It was actually moving towards my um, my my ding up in the forest. So I, uh, when I went back there in a few minutes, of course, I'm I'm sort of looking around. And we had a we had a tiger there that year too. Uh, Ajahn Siri and I didn't see it, but um, our the man who acted as our cook, that way down below in the uh, settled area, he uh, he saw the tiger. And uh, later we saw uh, a wild boar that it had killed, and, and some tiger fur, you know, because wild boars are pretty, pretty, uh, uh, pretty stern customers, in their own right. Uh, there was there are elephants in the area. Uh, an elephant had passed through, basically the day before I reached my kuti, uh, during the rains because the, the prints were all around my kuti. And uh, yeah, well, Gibbons, and it's 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 a it's a, a marvelous place. It really is. So it's an interesting place for practice. Now this goes right back to the time of the Buddha, fifth century BC, India, and where you're constantly uh, existentially in confrontation with wild animals, and you have no, you're very vulnerable, right? You're in the forest. There's no protection. Monks don't carry weapons, and uh, they only have. For their protection, they only have uh, metta or loving kindness. So, did you get some good practice with your metta? Did you existentially have to practice your metta? Oh yes. We um, uh, when we first went in, uh, we we stopped to see Lumpur Piak. I think uh, Ajahn Siri would try to to arrange a, a meeting with a Krubajan on the way into Daodam because for anybody, it's a it's a novel experience, uh, let alone for a furang who's looking for <laughs> black bears. And uh, Lumpur Biak said, you know, um, you, you, you have to you have to chant the the, the uh, protection chant every day. Basically, when you wake up in the morning before you go to sleep at night, I usually threw in a third just for good measure. <laughs> I was very diligent with that, and um, I actually gained in that, that even that single experience with that particular chant a sense of confidence in the in the kind of power um, and benefit. Of uh, doing such a thing, because even when I was staying on the Dieng, uh, I remember, I mean, it, it it brought my mind again and again and again to my vulnerability, um, but also to my intentions with relations with relation to the to the beings that I was living around, and um, I did feel uh, over time um, a kind of confidence uh, in me and in, re- in relation to them, to the point that uh, later on during the the uh, rains themselves, there was uh, not once but twice uh, quite a large viper in my kuti, and uh, you know for uh, you know for a Canadian man uh, that's that's a that's an interesting experience. I, I didn't I certainly wasn't going to treat it lightly, so we took it out one day, but that night it was back in, and uh, in that case it was in my little there's a uh, about a meter wide um, toilet area. And it was on a corner shelf, and I had to I had to pass it in order to use the toilet. 
So I'm, I'm sort of looking at it. It's not moving at all. It's just, it really is probably di- digesting a meal, staying out of the rain. And I had to think, well, I'm not its prey, and uh, it knows, I think, that I don't mean it any harm. So I used the toilet and, and did that. I don't think I brushed my teeth that night because toothpaste was an inch away from it. And, and, then I, and then I wondered, well, will I be able to sleep and, and so forth? So I, I had a little, I, had a, I put a couple of precautionary candles I was sleeping on the floor and I, I, I set the timer for 20 minutes and I woke up and it hadn't moved a millimeter. So I did that again and wake up again and I just thought, you know, it's not going anywhere. And uh, um, so I, I, I just uh, continued my sleep and... We took it out the next day. Ajahn Siri uh, got a stick. We had to kind of plan it out. And he, he got a stick and got it behind the head of it. And then I had a towel around my hand and I grabbed it behind the head. And he took the the, 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 uh, the tail of it and we marched it out. And this time we were smart. We put it in a pail. Now you put the tail in first and then you've got the head and you've got the <laughs> lid. And so you, as quickly as you can, you, you do this maneuver. And um, and then we, we took it down the, the hill the next day. And uh, quite lovely when when we opened up the lid and kind of coaxed it out finally. It, it, it took off. And it's not a small snake, but I remember it climbed this bank quite quickly and then just sort of looked at us, you know, and, 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 and then went on its way. And, and um, um, it, it's such an elegant creature, you know. So yes, you do you do develop a sense of your presence there, and um, the the practice of metta is 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 uh, you can't do without it really, and uh, it was um, I think an important little step in in, in that particular um, uh, um, development practice bhavana, uh, my being there, um, to to feel that confidence actually that was that was an interesting thing. When the sun goes down in a big, dense jungle, uh, it becomes pitch black, and then you just hear the sounds, and uh, you're very... You, you talked about a, something called a dieng, yes. which is a kind of a raised platform mm-hmm. uh, without much in the way of protection, and you're exposed. And at that time, we suddenly, all of our... Maybe our rational and modern mind disappears on us and we go back to an earlier type of reality, which we've evolved in. I mean, that we, most of human history is evolving with a complete close encounter with, with uh, the, the depth of the jungle and the night and the, and the vulnerability. And it's a very different mindset. So the spiritual language is, is good to... To be with, mm-hmm. and and there's not just the animals, but there's the sense of the invisible, that that sense of beings that are not visible to us but are somehow present. Do you have any intuitions and feelings about that? <laughs> yes, um, you know I've always been interested. Uh, I I don't um, I don't have particular um, uh, facility or or gifts with 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 these things, but I've just always been interested and very open to what we would call ghosts and angels and and you know devas and and so forth. It just to me it's a it's a realm of phenomena that I believe in and and just yeah am open to, and of course it it fits. Uh, it fits uh, exactly perfectly in with uh, Buddhist cosmology, so I uh, these these sorts of things certainly came to mind during my time there, and they they do so even now, in Canada and uh, also over the years in Thailand. So um, yeah, that you're you're with yourself in that silence, but it's um, um, it's not always a quiet environment, as you know. I mean, there, there are periods, there's a cicada season which can be extremely loud. Um, and there are other bugs and, and that. You get to, especially on the Ding, because you're really outside, just you have your mosquito net, you're aware of, for instance, when to use a John Grom path. You remember, you put the candles on 
And if you do it too early in the evening, there's a certain sort of bug that just flocks to it and they all die by the by the hundreds and they kind of wreck your candle too because it's burning in, in funny kinds of ways. So, you know, I learned to, to, um, to do my, my uh, walking meditation later in, in the evening. And I would often... Uh, because I didn't have a lot of uh, formal chanting experience uh, uh, at that time, I would use that uh, uh, to uh, to learn chants, practice them, and and actually vocalization. I mean, it brings out some energy, but it it also um, it's um, it's uh, you're making a bit of your own noise too, and not just listening to maybe fears that that might be uh, kind of being provoked from time to time uh, uh, due to things that you're hearing in the jungle. So um, it's a way of establishing your presence, a benign one for certain, but, but certainly uh, uh, it, it, it's a way of, um, of voicing, you know, giving yourself some voice in that uh, immense uh, ex- uh, jungle experience. You always wonder what the next sound might mean. And, and, then, and then as a meditator, you're always curious to see what, what that sound evokes. Is it fear? Is it, is it questioning curiosity? Where, where does the mind go? So um, as we know from, from the great uh, forest masters, meditation masters, they would often send uh, their, their disciples into uh, sometimes rather dangerous circumstances, you know, where they knew a tiger ha- happened to be living. And um, without really wanting to, to live too close to, to a tiger, it, uh, I, I could see the, the wisdom of that because you're, you're simply, you fall back on your own resources and but we're given the, the, the extraordinary gift of, of, of instructions from the Buddha and from, from living uh, masters of these experiences. And so we have things that we can follow, uh, resources to fall back on and develop in our own way as best we can. Right, it's a really different experience to be uh, meditating in the forest in a very exposed and vulnerable way and also a very minimalist uh, lifestyle. You're, you're just collecting your alms at the lower station there. Uh, and so it's very different than, than being in a, um, a conditioned building or in a, in a meditation retreat. It's just a, a very much more immersed and closer to the uncertain, uh, mm-hmm. or at least the impression of the uncertain, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, in that particular place, too, you realize that, um, I remember Ajahn Siri and I discussing this, you know, if one of us breaks an ankle or something, pretty serious, is pretty serious. Uh, you get bit by a snake. Uh, if you really needed medical attention, I can't imagine getting out of that particular place unless, I can't imagine being back. I set, Apparently I set a kind of a record uh, because my father was, uh, was uh, became, uh, he's very elder, elderly and became... Uh, it was clear that he was approaching his own death. And um, I, I think I, I spoke on the phone at 7 in the morning, and I was in Bangkok 2, two o'clock in the morning that day, and that was absolute, you know, top speed. Uh, this is a very difficult place to get to. So it meant that um, uh, we look after ourselves, but we also are responsible for the other. We need to be able to assist, say, if someone did injure themselves or something like that. So we, it, it, it gives even more my, uh, reason to be mindful when walking down the slippery during the pansa mm-hmm. and uh, crossing, you know, many times this sometimes raging um, stream, uh, sometimes a very uh, um, steep um, uh, flow to it. So uh, everywhere you look, there are reasons to be mindful, to take good care, and, and, and also to use the experience in, in as, as productive a way as you can. Um, but it, it it gives so much too, and uh, that's that's something that uh, is um, makes it's one of the things that makes it very very special, I think, in the inexperience of many of us. Yeah, I remember a passage from the Tao Te Ching about attention and mindfulness, and it was like men crossing an icy stream in winter. <laughs> and I, I've had a lot of experience crossing icy streams in winter, slippery ice-covered boulders, and you know what yeah. happens if you fall in that icy river. So it's a beautiful uh, lesson in mindfulness. Mindfulness is also has to be at, at uh, a high state in the forest, 
there's a constant level of self-protection. There's another level uh, of the small things, that is ants and malaria and uh, uh, things that, and in, in general, it seems that most monks do not perish through the large things, but almost all monks are assaulted in some way by things like malaria and uh, fevers and uh, and the endless species of ants that exist everywhere in Thailand. I, I read once that uh, biologists say, without being able to prove, they, they estimate, I've heard, that something like 20, 15 to 20% of the of the biomass of living creatures in the world, on the planet, it, are ants. It's a little bit, I mean, you think of an elephant, and, and uh, let alone just a, an auditorium full of people, but apparently this is, uh, this is true. And in Thailand, I have to say, at least becomes more plausible. Uh, I think at Daudam, luckily, ants weren't uh, such they aren't such an issue. Ubon is just wow. It's uh, quite a place for ants, but um, um, they're always in the picture, and you know. So there are um, ways of keeping them out of kutis, little rags of oil or water, or, or um, little ditches with with water in them all the time. So uh, you do need to look after that, and, and termites, keeping them away from wooden structures. So. Yeah, for a Canadian to go to go into this environment, as you know, it's uh, there are just so many things to begin to factor in. A lot, of, a lot to learn. And any concerns about malaria? Um, yes, although, well, basically, uh, dawn and dusk, you know, when mosquitoes might be out, you have to be in your kuti or or under the glot, uh, the the um, mosquito net uh, outside. Um, and I think we would use sometimes a bit of mosquito repellent, but basically I was finding that remaining, you know, um, properly protected during those times of the day, it was okay. And then in the middle of the day, not so bad, um, because there were just three people living in, I don't know, a thousand acres or more. It takes, I think, two, two and a half hours to get to the next village by motorbike from Daudam, uh, from the bottom. So... Um, yeah, we anyway, we did not encounter malaria. It has, I think, come up there. Uh, these days in Thailand, dengue is... Uh, we've had some outbreaks of dengue in our area, which uh, have uh, yeah, have been quite, quite significant, which is a pretty tough uh, fever. So I want to jump back uh, to the early days before you were a monk. Talk a little bit about uh, your first experiences, how you encountered meditation or dhamma did you come to uh buddhism first or just meditation in general or just what how did you come to it was meditate i mean uh when i was maybe 15 or so i would just was interested you know the days of the maharishi and the beatles in india and uh, there could be um far deeper antecedents to that in 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 my experience and, and that of many but uh at least for me in the 60s, it was kind of on our cultural radar if you were of a certain age. So uh, I did I did meditate a bit when I was quite young, and um, and it had my interest. I was not a regular meditator, and uh, and I didn't have a specific tradition I was focusing on. One thing that was always interesting to me, though, in retrospect, um, I didn't learn about Buddhism in particular. I didn't. I wasn't. There wasn't much in the bookstore about, uh, at least in a little town that I lived in. So um, it was not really on my radar, just kind of Indian slash Eastern spirituality, you might say, yoga and so forth. And then um, I guess with that interest, though, the first course I took in university, an evening course, was uh, on an introduction to Eastern religions. And... um, and this is where you know happenstance becomes something more, uh, more has more a little more gravity to it. But um, sometime in September, we started our section on Buddhism. The the instructor was a specialist in Buddhism, so we it got a little bit more airtime that that term. And I'd literally it was a once a week course, and I'd literally learned about the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, something about the Buddha's teaching. Uh, and I was invited to a retreat, a weekend retreat in Edmonton. I lived in, in Calgary, Alberta then. And um, 
And I was intrigued and, well, wasn't at a retreat, wouldn't that be interesting? You get to, you know, experience meditation over, you know, a couple of days, whoa. Um, so I, I signed up for it and, uh, and, and really um, the teacher that I met, I had no idea who he or she might be. The teacher I met turned out to be um, a person of uh, considerable um, intuitive intelligence and um, uh, ability. She was uh, um, an elderly, I guess she would have been in her 60s at the time, Austrian-Canadian woman who, owing to her own um, charged and, and deep experience of meditation, much younger, in, in earlier in her life, had gone to India, spent six years in India and Sri Lanka studying from uh, pundits and then various uh, uh, masters in that tradition until she finally uh, encountered, uh, first of all, Tibetan Buddhists in a monastery in, I think, South India, and she moved to Sri Lanka. So she, by the time I knew her, was teaching um, uh, what we would call a vipassana technique, meditation, um, and, and very thoroughly uh, Theravadan in its orientation. And, um, I mean, several things happened in, in the space of a weekend that, that I, I, if I didn't know it exactly, I, I did feel that it was, it was transformative. It was something was very pivotal in what had occurred. And, and that uh, assessment of that time has, has never wavered. Um, I really think that that was, that was when, when everything changed in my life. And uh, she, she, uh, you, you retain a sense of gratitude for uh, those occasions and, and the people that uh, are involved, and especially um, teachers of her caliber. So that's a very special time. So did you have any intuition that this was a kind of a encounter with something that was almost a quality of family, or like was this there was a certain recognition of this, or? Or that um, this this was very familiar to you, or in any way. There are two or three kind of sort of pivotal, uh, transformative elements to it, I guess. One was uh, rather like you're you're suggesting. One was um, uh, when I when I really caught the, the 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 character, the quality, the the the, the luminance, uh, uh, quality of, of mindfulness, and I realized, oh. That's what meditation is, and you know, because because I had dabbled in meditation for many years by this over over, you know, since I was fifteen, I was now twenty six. Um, uh, I, I suddenly realized, oh, finally, this is a technique that I can work with. This this really works. Um, that was that was one thing, and it was, it was very very uh, striking for me. Another was. Um, realizing later, probably around the Sunday near the time when we were leaving, realizing that I'd met a teacher. I remember her making, um, offering a response to some question I had of great urgency. And, and she, for her, it was the simplest. It was clear that this was terrain that she had known for decades. And, uh, and I was um, uh, really stunned. This is absolutely brand new territory. And she'd already... Uh, discovered and, and trodden the whole landscape, as it were. And I thought, my God, I've, you know, I've, I've met a teacher, and I. This is a category of, of yeah, uh, in the, in the whole spiritual parlance as a as a seeker, uh, which I probably thought of myself as at that time. This was uh, uh, really remarkable, and there's a, another category as deeper, deeper, which was. Uh, uh, she's a wise person. This is what wisdom looks like. And this is something I'd always been interested in uh, since I was quite young, um, this interest in, in wisdom and, and becoming wise. Uh, but I'd never, I'd never known that I'd encountered it before, so it, it was, uh, made a huge impact on me. Uh, and as far as it being so, there was a sense of famili familiarity uh, with that, I think, feeling at home in the practice, um, feeling uh, a comfort with the way she well, structured the retreat itself, and also uh, uh, with her way of interacting with us. It was, uh, it was very deep and, and uh, very wonderful, really. Right, I met her, I think, about 1987, and... Uh... 
she's going to go down in Canadian history as uh, one of the first pioneers of uh, bringing Theravada Buddhism. She's quite an impact, and I I know lots of uh, rather mature uh, practitioners these days who uh, started with Anna Garika Damadina. She was quite the character. Um, and brought, was, uh, you know, quite well educated in the, in the, in the canon and, uh, and the commentaries and had practiced quite a, a, a long ways ahead of her, of the generation to formally practice in, uh, in Asia. Uh, so let's go on to, uh, this started to e- evolve into your university career and you end up doing a doctorate in religious studies. Uh, the doctorate is actually in education, but I, I, I worked, I basically, I was able to write about something that was as interesting as I could find to write about. And uh, I was able to find a home in, in, a, in a, a faculty of education uh, in Edmonton. So, but there's a strong philosophical component and, and I was able to use um, uh, Buddhist background, um, you know, elements of, of the worldview, the teachings, as well as uh, quite a lot of um, interview uh, experience that I had. I was, you know, I, I recorded interviews, transcribed them, and and um, found, tr- tried to locate, find in these interviews. Um, um, th- there's a theme, of, as you know, that I was I was working with, which was uh, uh, existential wonder. My interest was to to um, to find to find something in the Buddhist uh, experience, Buddhist practice, not just theory, but practice that was could act as a bridge into uh, uh, Western viewpoints, Western philosophy. Since philosophy has such a kind of prestige within the Western mind, um, uh, I, I, I was looking for this kind of uh, in order to develop a, a conversation between. Uh, not just Buddhist and, and Western ideas, but um, but uh, s- some of the, some of the depth which which gives rise to or informs ideas. So I, I used uh, I used uh, the notion of existential wonder to as a as a potential bridge to this experience we call insight. Mm-hmm. So uh, a connection between these two things. Um, so talk a little bit about what in uh, Western philosophy had any relevance to you in terms of Buddhist practice? Was there anything that connected? Yeah, I, you know, I always thought I should be really interested in philosophy, and, and I was. I loved, you know, I read Plato and, and other thinkers, but um, it it could be just that I wasn't, I'm not intellectually adept enough to follow uh, uh in their in their entirety, uh, lengthy arguments that are developed in various schools of Western thought. Some philosophers did interest me, um, but it wasn't really until I encountered uh, the phenomenological tradition, European uh, tradition that really starts in early 20th century, that I found at least, uh, for my modest uh, abilities, a kind of philosophical home. And um, so I read, you know, Merleau-Ponty and, and um, um, Martin Heidegger on, on um, when his in his uh, phenomenological uh, turn, and um, tried to tried to find uh, the the ideas that were consistent, compatible, and somehow could inform perhaps uh, this this dialogue that I was uh, interested in that I mentioned there. So, yeah, it's um. Uh, what would I say? My my philosophical training was not at all formal. It was not systematic, but rather like my reading of literature. It just I'm just sort of following my nose, and one person refers to another, and I read that person, and 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 some people write better philosophy than others. I mean, David Hume, although I'm not. Uh, wasn't particularly drawn to uh, the Anglo-American tradition. David Hume is a beautiful writer, so I, I, I spent a little bit more time with him than others. But it seemed to be the uh, the uh, European thinkers, the continental thinkers, that were of most uh, interest to me. And Hume, he is interesting in that he's probably the first uh, Western philosopher to talk about no or the absence of self or his inquiry into into his inner being, and he did not find a stable self. So it's very Buddhist, isn't it? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, he he might have he might have um, he might have lost heart just at the very end there. I think, mm-hmm. but it's true. Um, it, it's a very interesting philosophical inquiry that he that he t- takes further and further, and uh, he does he, he does um, land this question squarely in the in the lap of uh, Western philosophy during his life of whether or not we can uh, legitimately speak of a of a coherent self. So and. <clears throat> So you finished your your doctorate and you got a job at the University of, Cal- of uh, Calgary teaching. And what was the what were the courses you were teaching? Well, I uh, I was teaching in, in the Department of Religious Studies there, which uh, at that time and perhaps still now is a is quite a robust uh, department. Uh, and, and actually, I was teaching well before I gained my doctorate. I, I, I did the doctorate in order to try to make sure I just remained uh, teaching because I couldn't really think of any other way of making a living, I suppose. Um, so the Department of Religious Studies had had three uh, focuses to it, um, uh, themes or depart- um, elements. I, I um, uh, focused on the uh, area of Eastern religions. So I taught the same course that I initially took before I saw Anagarika. I taught the Introduction to Eastern Religion uh, Dozens and dozens of times, um, and uh, uh, other courses on, on more particularly on Buddhism, on early early forms of Hinduism, and things of that nature. And so, at some point, now you're still you're a, a householder at this point, uh, and you have some children, uh, grown up children, right? Yes, they were growing up at the time. Uh, started out to be pretty young, beginning in this whole process for me, and uh, two sons. And um, so, by the time I was finishing my university studies, uh, uh, and and um, and that uh, they were now uh, they were both in university by this time, pretty much. So I had I'd done my early work in the 80s and, and uh, been teaching a lot through the 90s and then started the, uh, the doctoral program uh, when they were, I suppose, high school and early university years. So, yeah, a certain, a certain, a certain um, opening, I guess, was arising in my life that I wasn't aware of. And uh, you had a part of, to, to play in that, certainly, Ajahn Sona. Well, let's, let's talk about that. Uh, just tell a little story about our encounter and how that... How yeah. that worked out. Well, we were we were speaking earlier, and I, I mean, I'm not certain, but it might have been around 1996 or 1997. Um, for now, so 20 years ago. Yes. <laughs> so um, there was a, a group of people interested in meditation in Alberta, which started under the auspices of Anagarika Dhammadina, and uh, all that all of the years from I think the late 70s until even even now, in fact. Uh, they have sponsored meditation retreats. So, um, in 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 that context, then um, people in Edmonton brought you uh, two or three times, I think, to Edmonton for ten day retreats, I believe. So I I went to one of those, um, as they say, maybe 1996 or so, and um, it was quite a revelation to be listening to a Buddhist monk who is who is Canadian not just uh, uh, um, a Buddhist practitioner who, who uh, was very knowledgeable or so forth, but actually a monk as well. So there was a, this is definitely a new dimension. Uh, we had studied with monks in the past, and, and Agarika herself um, was, she, she called herself Anagarika, so uh, she was still living by eight precepts, but I believe she had uh, be- become a seminary in, in, um, in Sri Lanka in the early years. So I had uh, we had we had fairly often encountered monks uh, and some you know pretty um, remarkable monks indeed uh, Venerable Piyadasi uh, Mahatera uh, Venerable Ananda Maitreya two uh, really remarkable uh, individuals and he was at that time one of the most senior uh, Sri Lankan monks in the in the world yeah. and uh, highly esteemed and he had visited uh, Calgary and so forth yeah. yes yes and and stayed with Anagarika a bit and been on a tour um, yeah he would have been I guess 70 punces, 70 some punces at that time 70 uh, uh, years as a monk at that time he lived until he was 101 or 103 or something mm-hmm. Yeah, the, so these encounters, uh, even prior to your uh, coming, Ajahn, were um, 
I mean, they, they, you, they, they impact you in, in a way that um, is, is deeper and somehow it, it, you notice the difference uh, being around uh, someone who's been in the robes for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. Uh, they, they carry themselves, their gestures, the, the way they respond to any kind of question, just their mannerisms. I mean, your, your eyes are open watching these people. So th- those are beautiful encounters. And, and then when you came, there was this added dimension of a, of a man my age, and, uh, but who's been a monk now for, at that time for quite a while. And, um, and um, uh, this, was, this was very important. I, I can remember I had several friends at that retreat, and uh, we were kind of comparing notes later, and it, uh, we were all really kind of... Um, um, taken with, with uh, the way you presented Dhamma in very contemporary terms. And I remember you gave a little story about, about um, the smile of Marilyn Monroe, I think. I mean, <laughs> Marilyn yeah. Monroe, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I so, used to work here into the Dhamma talks. <laughs> <laughs> but you could work almost anything into Dhamma talks. <laughs> so, yeah, these are great. And then, and then that particular, uh, you know, probably... Two months afterwards, I came to Princeton, where Birkin II, so-called, uh, existed at the time, and spent, I think, 10 days or two weeks with you at Birkin. Uh, that, too, is a marvelous experience. Um, and again, you know, it, it didn't conform to what I might think of as, a, as an Eastern monastery. It was uh, this, this place, this sort of farmhouse, basically, with some little um, kutis, little, little monastic huts on a piece of very recognizable territory, Canadian, uh, Princeton, that kind of thing. So um, I was being drawn into the possibility, I think without knowing it in some ways, but into the possibility of uh, making that uh, transition myself. And you did. So, um, and it's quite a thing. I, I, in Asia, perhaps more common to leave the family life and go off to be a monk. It's the society celebrates it. Here, it is a strange thing to do. And so there's a lot of uphill kind of resistance to it, but you decided, in and having a very comfortable uh, profession, uh, career as a uh, professor, and having a family, how is it to step out of that uh, against all odds into the robes and the ordination was in Canada. The invitation was to Birkin Monastery. And so how was that transition? What was the experience like? Well, I mean, in retrospect, and even at the time, to a large extent, it was just marvelous. <laughs> but, um, of course, <laughs> it was very dense and and, uh, and contested at times and uh, interesting, certainly. Um and throughout the, that process, not I mean, you know, we're, we're all self-referential and we kind of, uh, you know, kind of mythologize our own experience. But, but um, throughout that time, I can remember thinking often that um, you know, by that time I knew dozens and dozens of, of meditators, uh, people who had been doing this for decades. Uh, because by the time I ordained or came to Birkin with you, uh, I'd been, you know, practicing in retreats for 20 years and... And so I had this network of friends, uh, most of whom were really appreciative of what, what I was doing, even though they recognized that it was, uh, you know, it came at cost, not just to, to myself, but of course to my family, my immediate family in particular. So, um, but, but I had, a, I had a, in a sense, a support group in that way. Um, the, uh, it was a different experience, naturally, for the family. My sons weren't Altogether surprised, I guess they, you know, uh, their first responses were, 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 oh wow, isn't that interesting? Or, well, it's not like it's a big surprise, and that that kind of that was those are the first sorts of things that came uh, uh, that they expressed. Um, my wife, I, I did. I had a I had a very decent job, and and uh, we lived quite comfortably and modestly, and uh, and I wasn't in the midst of um, of a, of a, of a 
some sort of rancorous relationship with with this wife. Not at all. I had a with all for what was for all intents and purposes a good marriage. So um, the leave taking was it wasn't. I was I wasn't trying to leave something behind. I was I was I had turned I'd opened a door a window and I was um, I had my attention very firmly on on something I was moving into. Uh, but it came at the cost of uh, people that I loved and, and uh, admired, and um, uh, and that that comes at a cost. But that's uh, it's uh, through our I think in some ways through our willingness to do these things in life that we also can mature as human beings. Which isn't to say I wouldn't have become, you know, something more uh, of what I I wouldn't have matured in ways uh, uh, remaining had I remained in in that life. But it was a, a, a difficult period in some ways. It took a lot of energy. I'm phoning friends and telling them, introducing what I'm doing, and they're responding as they do. And a lot of you know the heart, giving of the heart and um, uh, walking people through it. And whether or not it was accurate, but I did see the whole process in terms of. Um, um, it's a novel thing in this world, and I was trying, I guess, to bear in mind that my actions and words and how it was that I did this to some degree reflected on the tradition I uh, so honored and and loved and was moving into in this formal capacity. So uh, I just did it as well as I could. And um, (laughs) would I do it the same now? I I doubt it, of course, uh, in retrospect, but but I I, I just tried to be as careful as I could. And... uh, and, um, you wouldn't do it the same now. What would you do differently? I don't really know. I mean, um, I just I I, I tried to uh, um, be honest and forthright and and, and kindly in my way of, of, of explaining the process to people, and their responses, of course, could be quite um, amongst, say, my brothers, and that it was it was a big thing for them to to swallow to get their arms around, and uh, so I can't uh, find fault in that. Um, it's just that's the way it was, and I, I suppose I might approach those those conversations a little differently now, but um, I'd have to see. <laughs> so, uh, but 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 the interesting thing was, um, I never regretted it, even even through the difficult times. I always thought, oh, what an opportunity, what a blessing, what an honor, and and I've uh, every young monk, I suppose, junior monk. Um, you know, thinks this way and that way, second guesses himself, and and we know from living amongst and, and knowing many many monks now, for for decades, uh, sometimes uh, people experience this in different ways, and sometimes um, there are lingering uh, issues with folks. Uh, elements of this just never have n- have never been part of my experience, and I've felt really grateful for that. So. Um, I wasn't strategizing through my lay life of how to find find myself into the robes. It just, when it actually hit, it was as a conscious thing. It, it just, um, it was clear that this was the time. It was like just turning something over and okay. But, um, and, and that was a surprise to me actually. So do you feel like the, the decision had been made for you in some sense? Was there like no other options? Yeah. Well, you, I don't, you, you're, you're very intuitive, and, and you also have a very good memory. But um, I used to sometimes explain it like this because people would always say, "Why did you decide to become a monk?" or "Why did you decide to become a Theravada monk?" or on and on. And I'd just say, "Look, <laughs> it sort of wasn't up to me. The decision made me. That was the way yeah. I would turn it, turn around." The... It's odd in the Buddhist world because in the Christian world, uh, monks and people explain this as a calling or God. You know, to deciding for them, but we don't have a God reference. But there's the same kind of experience of uh, uh, more or less saying, "Well, I, I just didn't have a choice. There was some sort of." Uh, and I'm not sure that we that everybody even approves of the new plan that's been <laughs> established in some part of the mind. There's been a, a new direction in life set out, and it's some it's somewhat inconvenient because you you got a family and a job and so forth. Uh, and yet this uh, kind of inevitable, uh, relentless uh, direction is there. It's very interesting how this, uh, the depth of this. I, I mean, I sometimes would 
it's it's like, well, when did you decide to fall in love with your husband? Or you know, <laughs> yeah. well, we don't do. We yeah, don't make right. that decision. It's not in that realm of of, uh, of our minds. Yes. Well, so the now you're thirteen years in the robes, coming up to fourteenth. Uh, this will be the fourteenth reigns. We call it the reigns. Yes. And uh, you are also have been to India on a number of pilgrimages and in fact guided some uh, some groups there to the holy sites and the uh, uh, abbot at your monastery at uh, venerable achilo has a has got an interesting personality he is very uh we call him faith oriented devotional oriented and uh, that's an interesting configuration for western monks um and these uh, visits to the holy sites is also the establishment of certain kind of a raising of faith and a larger dimension of Buddhism than the mere meditation or mindfulness. And so, how does that play out for you? I mean, this 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 uh, this whole and very important larger dimension of Buddhism. Uh, and what do you feel? Is it is this what's going to come to the West now? I think uh, certainly my my meeting of Ajahn Achilo has been and, and sort of living around him with him uh, for these years has been very very wonderful, um, and I would say that, that was it is I think evident when when people meet him he's a different sort of personality I mean we're all different of course but it's quite pronounced with him uh, this um, this openness to dimensions of, of Buddhist life and practice which aren't always spoken of so much or at all sometimes uh, amongst Western Buddhists, even amongst uh, Western monks necessarily. So that's been really lovely actually to be in that environment. And um, yeah, I mean, speaking personally, but but this might uh, ring true with many uh, Western Buddhists uh, uh, listening to this, uh, our, our conversation, but there, there has been at least, and maybe still is, um, but has been an attitude that's fairly prevalent in, in amongst Western Buddhists. I mean, we encounter it as quite, quite often as an adjunct to, to the yoga studio, or you know, it's it's a practice, very much a practice, and people are drawn to meditation because it's relaxing and that. But when people often find their way to a Buddhist retreat, it's, it, it, it develops into a, it has developed into a, an interest in wisdom, in, in insight, in, in enlightenment, and um, uh, what it is that we can know. So there is a kind of um, um, uh, a quality which we would more attribute to a kind of, uh, to the head, you might say. All the while, of course, understanding and appreciating that the heart plays a role in practice, but still there is a privileging in our culture in general of uh, the intellectual, uh, rational pursuits, logical thinking, uh, uh, clair- clarity, and less, um, less reliance or less, less presence of the emotional life, you might say. And and then you know just being a little humorous, but being a Western Buddhist and knowing about Asian Buddhists and um, yes, oh they're so nice. They 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 um, they love they love the tradition so much, and they sometimes we see them and they you know they bring flowers and they they're always sort of smiling and happy to be with one another. And um, but they don't. You know, there's always a but there. You know, but they don't really meditate or they don't really understand meditation or. Um, they don't seem to be really so interested in, at this time in, in insight there, what they are doing and sort of cultivating their, their spiritual practice for a future life in which they can, they can find their way to the meditation cushion and, and sort of do the real practice. So I'm, I'm, this is a kind of caricature and it obviously is uh, not uh, uh, going to apply everywhere and I don't want to offend uh, in, by doing so. But I think it, it, in my experience it is you know, somewhat honest uh, to some degree of, of what we often experienced. So yeah, just coming to, to Thailand itself uh, has has just, I, I'm, you know, I live in a different kind of culture. People have a different attitude and, thank you very much, they've been quite happy with their Buddhist practice for, say, seven centuries. <laughs> that, does, that does make a difference. It's lovely, actually, to, to see forms of presumption uh, just just fall away uh, uh, with with uh, this exposure 
So yeah, Sajjan Achalo, um, in a sense, uh, typifies um, the the melding of this this uh, um, uh, faith culture with a, a clear understanding of, of so much of what we find in the suttas and in, uh, and and uh, of interest uh, with regards to wisdom itself. But he, you know, I guess in a way he he, he practices more like an Asian would. I think he identifies himself perhaps uh, with with uh, the Asian mentality sometimes more strongly than than Western mentality. So this uh, this exposure for me has been very beneficial. Um, so these the, the 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 opportunities I've had I've had to go to India have have uh, deepened all of this. And um, I mean the Buddha has himself praises uh, going to the to the four holy sites uh, where he was born, where he um, became enlightened, where he gave his first teaching, and where he finally passed away into parinibbana. And um, um, if you're looking for it too in the suttas, you find instances of of, um, of this kind, this sort of praise for things which might be glossed over in if you're just looking for analysis of the, uh, of the five khandas or some sort of wisdom teaching. We might not always look for the same things when we're looking in this vast corpus of the of the sutta literature. Uh, I sometimes think, you know, uh, in the Sangyutta Nikaya early on when Venerable Kondanya um, returns to the Buddha, he's been away for 12 years and he returns to the Buddha, sees the Buddha at a distance and approaches him and you can just, you know, you, it, it's such an evocative scene. He approaches the Buddha and all it's all it is recorded, this is in the Vangisa Sangyutta, all that's recorded is that he bows at the Buddha's feet, he, he strokes and he kisses his feet and he says, it's Kondanya, Lord, it's Kondanya, Blessed One. And um, and this is from an arhat, uh, you know, whom Vangisa described as a triple knowledge man. I mean, he he had finished his work. He calls him the firstborn, I think, of the Buddha. Such a beautiful scene, but so tender and uh, um, speaking so so beautifully of, of gratitude, of, of devotion, of just loving care. Uh, so. The, this this um, mindset, you might say, or the orientation of the heart that that we find in in Asian Buddhist culture, uh, definitely has a role and a, and a place and a voice in the suttas. Um, and it's uh, it's it's inter- it's of interest to me to find uh, some of these things uh, to see what they do for my own practice. I mean, I'm. Um, I'm just interested to, to become uh, a little more wise in myself, of course. And uh, um, so, being in being in, in Thailand and now with these opportunities to visit India a few times has been uh, very valuable. Added to this, I would I'd have to say something that I don't experience in any profound or um, you know I don't have the psychic uh, sensitivities around these things necessarily. But you know, you just you. you 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 just uh, you stand in front of the, the Mahabodhi temple, or you or you you look at the Bodhi tree, even though it's maybe the fifth or sixth generation. But he was enlightened right here, and you just you just let these facts sink in. Very very powerful. Or as I was saying yesterday, uh, you you look at the cave in which Sariputta was fanning the Buddha uh, when he was uh, when he finally achieved his his, his final awakening. And you can you can go in there to this day and sit in meditation before the crowds come and you know want to want to get in there too. But uh, these places they they just they resound with some kind of power and truth and beauty that I think uh, we are still at some level sensitive to. Well, that's a beautiful um, hour, and we hope to have more of these conversations. Over time, I want to. We now have a fairly rich uh, collection of, of experienced meditators in the West, and we now ha- we also have the the media and the technology to capture some of these things so that we uh, can share them with other people. So this has been a very nice conversation with uh, Venerable Pavaro, who will soon be returning to the forests. Thailand and we wish him great success 
and we hope to hear more from him uh, in the future. And also, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, he shows up on some sort of recordings and media as well, teaching Dhamma in the near future. So thank you for your participation in this. It's a good opportunity, Ajahn, to uh, to repeat something I said in in uh, in uh, in England, but. Uh, uh, it's uh, as I said earlier. I mean, it's a it's a great it's a marvelous uh, honor to to be a monk. And uh, you, you you as a monk, you always think back to your teachers, my preceptor Lumpur Pasano and my my monastic teacher Ajahn Son, and uh, you just in a sense can't repay these debts. So thank you for again for that uh, important role in my life. Excellent.